Hello, I'm Leanne Castellino. Welcome to this edition of Where Parents Talk on 105.9 The Region. Each week, we dive into different hot topics through the lens of the lived experience, scientific research, or the body of expertise of our guests, all of whom are parents themselves. Later on today, we're going to look at a topic that has gripped all of us in some way because of the global pandemic. Coping with loss and grief through the perspective of a father and widower. That's coming up later in the show. But first, dependency or addiction, be that vaping, smoking, drugs, alcohol, or other substances, is often a hidden and stark reality in many families today. Our first guest is now in her eighth year of being sober. She is a mom of two, a teacher, and a journalist. Jessica Leahy is also a contributing writer to the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Atlantic. In 2021, Leahy, who's also a New York Times best-selling author, published her second book. It's part memoir infused with evidence-based research on how to prevent substance abuse in teens and young adults. The book is called The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. Jessica Leahy joins us from her home in Vermont. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Jessica, I wondered if we could start by having you paint a picture for us of the role that alcohol has played in your life. Well, I was raised by an alcoholic and one of my parents was raised by an alcoholic and so on and so on. And in my husband's family, um, substance use disorder is also something that is gone back generations. So once I got a hold on my own drinking in 2013, the very first place my brain went was how do I prevent this from continuing on, you know, through the generations in our family where how do I make this stop with me? And, you know, the, the thinking is, is that substance use disorder is preventable. Um, but uh, that's what the experts say, but what does that mean? You know, how do we break down that word preventable in terms of what works, what doesn't work, what's myth, what's reality. So that's really what this book, um, where this book came from. You talk about 2013 and that was a, a key point in your life. You were in your early forties at that point. What was the lowest point that then led you to saying, you know what, I've got to address this for myself. You know, it was, it was really interesting, but so many people talk about like sort of their worst night and, and that it was bad, but I actually don't remember a lot of it. I was blackout drunk. It was my mother's birthday party. It was, it was bad, but as I said, I don't remember it, which I guess is good. I don't know. But the thing that was really striking to me is that my father, who's really conflict avoidant, he hates having arguments with me. He doesn't like upsetting me. He's just, we're really close. And um, he came up to me the morning after up to the guest room where I was staying. And he said, you know, you're, I know what an alcoholic looks like and you're an alcoholic and you need help. And for me, I, number one, I was ready. Um, I, I knew this was coming. I knew I needed help. On the other hand, I also was looking at this man who loves me so much and wanted so much for me to get better that he was able to put aside the fact that just conflict and, and confrontation, just he hates it. So this was coming from a place of incredible love. And yet it wasn't him appeasing me. It was him confronting me. It was something that really needed to be dealt with. So, you know, it was in, in retrospect, I owe him so much and I'm so grateful to him for overcoming his fears in order to talk to me about it. 
And that is such a huge issue in so many families. And we introduced this as saying it's a, it's a hidden reality for many families today, especially of, of kids with, you know, who are teens and young adults. You, you were quoted as saying that you were born to write this book. Why do you believe that? So don't get me wrong. I love my first book. The gift of failure was, you know, it was a breakthrough thing for me. It changed my life. I I'm so grateful that I got to write that book. Um, this book really combines my teaching, my own experiences as an alcoholic and someone now in recovery. Um, the stories of a couple stories from my students are in this book. Uh, one in particular, Georgia, who I taught in high school and who quit high school, went on to, um, you know, she was a uh, really in bad place having to do with her addiction and she ended up in prison. She ended up homeless, but Georgia was adamant that her real name go on in this book because for her telling that story is what made, has made that entire experience worth it for her. And I feel it, I feel the same way that, you know, this book and all the stuff I had to go through as a kid with a parent who was an alcoholic and a grandparent who was an alcoholic, um, all the stuff I had to go through with my own uh, substance use disorder, all of that is worth it. If I can get people talking about what really works to prevent substance use disorder in kids. And as someone who taught for five years in a drug and alcohol rehab for adolescents, you know, I looked around at, at these kids every day I was in that classroom and said, how do we prevent more kids from ending up here? How, what happened to these kids that they ended up here? And it, there is really great research on what works and what doesn't. And so I think we need to dispel some of the myths. And, and that's, I think, what I, you know, I've kind of been called to do. And, and I feel very strongly about being honest and open about my own recovery so that other people can start feeling a little more brave about being talking about their issues. Absolutely. You are listening to Where Parents Talk on 105.9 The Region. I'm Leanne Castellino, and our guest is Jessica Leahy, mom, educator, author, and recovering alcoholic, discussing steps parents can take to guard against substance abuse in their children. You undertook an immense amount of research before you put pen to paper or fingers to keyboard, however you look at it, um, it, before writing the addiction inoculation. Take us briefly through that thought process and the research that you undertook. I got to do a lot of the research before I even proposed to write the book. And then I got to spend another couple of years doing the research. So the other nice thing for me is I don't have my foot in any one camp. You know, um, there's the brain, you know, addiction is a brain um, is a brain disease. Addiction is about trauma. Addiction is about a developmental stage of, you know, there's all these camps and I don't, belong to any one camp. So as a journalist, I was really able to um, evaluate all of the evidence from an objective point of view and then bring that all together so that I could help parents and teachers and mentors understand, no, here, really, this is what works. This is what doesn't. Let's stop doing the things that don't work and let's start doing the things that do. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about what you did find in your research. What did you discover about the risk factors for substance abuse disorder? It looks like genetics is about 50 to 60% of the risk picture. So for our family, that means that my kids automatically, just by being born, have a higher risk level than kids who don't, aren't born into a family where there's a genetic predisposition for substance use disorder. So I don't have time to not talk about this thing. It is really important that I get on the stick. And, and we changed a lot of the parenting practices in our family based on that. Um, and then on top of that, you have... Um, 
epigenetics, which is between genetics and, and environment. And it has to do with how your genes get turned off and on by the things that you're exposed to as a child. There's adverse childhood experiences, which are the traumatic events that kids go through that um, according to a massive study that the CDC and Kaiser Permanente did, um, expose kids to all kinds of negative health and mental health consequences over their life from stroke to heart attack to substance use disorder. And then on top of that, we have things that kids go through. Transitions are a particularly risky time for kids. Um, kids who are um, failing academically are at higher risk. Kids who are socially ostracized or at higher risks. Kids who have undiagnosed learning issues are at higher risk. And there are a list um, of adverse childhood experiences that I think we need to come, uh, we need to approach from a place of not of shame and of guilt, but of understanding that the more information we have about risk, the better we can target our, our preventions. And some of those risks are things like divorce and separation and adoption. And while those things themselves are not dangerous to kids the way we handle them and the way we talk to kids about them are. And so we need to come forward and say, okay, I've, I've exposed my kids to this risk like I have. Um, and, and what do I do about that? How do I not just feel guilty and, and shamed and, and not talk about it? How do I take that information and move forward from a place of power and control and feeling uh, from a place of being proactive and, and having self-efficacy? You talk about pivoting your own parenting practices as you, you know, have been on your parenting journey grappling with, with, with this piece. What strategies can you share with parents on how they can protect their children or inoculate them uh, against alcohol or substance abuse? Well, the first thing we did that my younger, so my kids are 22 and 17, and the 22-year-old was raised in a home where I, I truly believed that I could raise a kid, I could teach him to be moderate around drinking. I could somehow, I couldn't model it for him because clearly I was an alcoholic, but we could let him have sips. We could let him have a little bit of wine or beer with dinner so that when he got to be of, you know, first uh, exposed to alcohol, it would be no big deal to him. That doesn't work. And not only because it's, you can't teach moderation, you especially can't teach moderation to someone who is predisposed to have um, substance use disorder. There's no way I can learn moderation. It's just not going to happen. So my 17-year-old is being raised with what we know from the research works, which is a clear and consistent message of no and not, not until it is legal for you. And legality matters less to me than brain development, um, but it so happens that um, adolescents' brains are not done developing until their early to mid-20s. So when I say no and not until it is legal, what I'm saying is not until your brain is done developing because the adolescent brain is more acutely sensitive to the effects of drugs and alcohol, more damage is done. And the further out, the further I can delay your first use, the more, the lower your lifelong risk of substance use disorder. Um, 90% of people who have substance use disorder um, report that they started using before they were 18. And we know, for example, if an eighth grader starts using the risk of lifelong substance use disorder is about 50%. But if we can get them to 18 or 21, it goes down to about 10%. So if I were to do anything other than that, I would be shirking my duty as a parent. And my kid knows that, not just that he's not allowed to have drugs or alcohol, um, you know, until it is legal for him, but that if I did anything else, I would be ignoring the research that um, is very clear on this. What would you say to parents who maybe have not done that and are listening to you going, oh my goodness, how do I roll back this clock? You know, where do I go from here? 
the thing that we can do is model for our kids a willingness to say, you know what, we did this thing or you did this thing because you thought at, at the time you were operating from your best the best evidence you had or that you um, miscalculated and made a mistake, but we have learned these things. So what are we going to do? So it's different next time. And that's the reason the word inoculation is in the title of this book, because there's a whole explanation in the book about inoculation theory and helping kids have ways to refuse that allow them to save face. And just knowing they have those refusal skills will make them more likely to use those refusal skills. And the great thing about inoculation theory, by the way, is that if we give kids tools against risky behaviors such as early drinking and drug use, it generalizes. So it also protects our kids against, um, you know, having sex before they're ready or getting in a car with a drunk driver or jumping off that pool roof into the pool below and, and you know, risking breaking their neck. It's, it's a generalizable uh, skill. So inoculation theory really has been the name of the game around our family after delay, delay, delay. We're going to have much more with Jessica Leahy on our digital platform. Go to whereparentstalk.com to watch the video interview with Jessica discussing advice, tips, and strategies for parents around substance abuse prevention. We're almost out of time, but Jessica, I did want to ask you any final thoughts that you want to leave parents who might be struggling with this question in their own homes with. I want parents to come to this book to be entertained, to uh, be carried along by narrative. There are a lot of stories in this book. And I don't want parents to come away thinking, oh, I've been, um, you know, I need to feel bad about this. I, I want parents to feel, and teachers and mentors and coaches, because we all have a lot of power where this is concerned, where prevention is concerned. Jessica Leahy, author of The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. Incredibly important topic. Thank you so much for sharing it with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome back. Coping with loss and grappling with grief is a process that's both deeply individual and unpredictable. Our next guest has lived and continues to live that reality as a husband and a father. He lost his wife, Kathy, in 2008 following a battle with cancer. Kathy was just 45 years old. Their only son was just nine at the time. Kathy's husband, Scott, has been raising their son alone ever since. He's also strived to honor his late wife's memory through a golf tournament and fundraiser. The annual event has taken place for several years at the Thornhill Golf and Country Club, supporting two organizations that were instrumental in helping Scott and his son through their shattering loss. Scott is also one of Canada's most prolific sports writers and authors. He has written more than a dozen books and was most recently executive producer of hockey on Rogers Sportsnet, as well as a regular commentator on Hockey Night in Canada. Scott Morrison, thank you so much for joining us on Where Parents Talk. My pleasure, Leanne. Thank you for having me. It's been 13 years since Kathy's passing. What would you say that you've learned about coping with loss and, and dealing with grief that has surprised you most over that time? You really don't know what you're getting into when you have to uh, take this journey. And uh, it's a learning experience every day. And uh, as much as there are textbooks and there's lots of people with words of wisdom, you really have to, to go through it to really understand it and then and, and take the many twists and turns to be able to, to cope with it and uh, 
and deal with the challenges. And uh, but it's there with you every day. And maybe at some point before, when you don't really know about it and you don't feel the emotions and understand them to the same degree, you think that there will come a day where you wake up and and things will be different. But as much as some things change, there's that one constant in your life that's, that's always there. In that vein, what would you say helped you and Mark, who again was just nine years old at the time uh, of his mother's passing, what helped you and supported you manage not only your own pain, but your young son? I think Kathy imparted a lot of wisdom in in both of us. And, uh, you know, I got a note from a, a friend just about the time, just after she passed away and he was devastated and uh, he was a a work colleague for many, many years with a, a, a wry sense of humor. And he, he sent me a note, and as I say, he was just devastated about what had happened himself. And he said that um, if there's anything good about all of this is that they say that the children develop their personalities and they, they get them from, by and large, one of the parents by the time I think they're six or seven years old. And he left it, and then the next line read, and thank God he got it from Kathy. So, <laughs> um, but it you know, friends and family and just that, that love you feel from people uh, helps you to, to get by. And, um, and again, what uh, just the love we continued to feel from her um, through it all. And uh, just maybe how she taught us about living uh, with how she dealt with having to stare down death for, as many years as she did. Take us through that a little bit in terms of, did you have time to prepare or did this come about suddenly? We did have time to prepare and uh, there's never enough time. uh, That's for sure. I mean, we had gotten married in uh, August of uh, 1995 and in January of 96. So how many months later, half a dozen months, not even that. Um, you know, and everything revolves in our life and from a work perspective, from hockey and writing. So I was sitting at my desk one day at the, at the newspaper at the Toronto Sun, and I was writing a column about a leaf trade that had happened that day. And that seemed like a pretty important deal. And all of a sudden my phone rang and, uh, it was from, uh, one of Kathy's sisters and that she'd been uh, taken to hospital and uh, she had been visiting her mom having a cup of tea and not, next thing you know she was on the floor having uh, you know convulsions epileptic uh, seizure that sort of thing so uh, and it was within a few days that we found out that she had a brain tumor and uh, the diagnosis was quite dire um, a short survival span, uh, depending on the, the type and the strain. And there's so many variables that go into determining that and mm-hmm. what procedures to follow and all the rest. So as, as, as it turned out, what was going to be a very short period of time turned out to be, you know, a dozen years where we went through surgeries and uh, various treatments and uh, MRIs on regular basis to determine whether or not the tumor had grown. And so coping with that kind of the stresses and challenges and knowing that, you know, there, there was a clock that was ticking and, and all the while trying to, to live at the same time. So uh, 
there was uh, as much as we had time, it, it felt like you were living every day and staring down a challenge, a huge challenge every day. Um, so that time did allow us to, to do some things and think things through, including having a son, having a, a child, ultimately a son. I'm Leanne Castellino, and we're talking about coping with loss. Our guest is Scott Morrison, widower, father of one, and one of Canada's preeminent hockey writers and authors. Scott, you talked about the incredible support that you received from family and friends. And I wonder along the way, as you've raised Mark by yourself, was there anybody else uh, involved in perhaps helping you co-parent your young son? One of the blessings in, in a sad situation was that because of developments in medicine and the great medical care uh, that she received and that we had, that uh, you know the process was longer than originally anticipated in terms of uh, how the tumor developed and the challenges she faced from a medical standpoint. So she had a lot of time to be with Mark and. Uh, and uh, not enough time, obviously, but um, he learned a lot from his mom. I learned a lot from his mom and my wife. And uh, so her presence was with us all the time. And there's many a day where you would say, geez, what would mom do? Or what do you think mom thinks about that? Or that type of thing. And it's, in some ways it may sound corny to people, but that was really a part of you. And that wisdom was always with you. And uh, you thought about her and, and it helped you get you through some situations at times as, as well. And, you know, we had support of the family, her sisters and mom and, uh, you know, my family, everybody was there as godparents, um, a lot of people doing things and, and dear friends. And, um, you know, I always have people asking, what can you do? What can you do? And, you know, for when you're going through it, you appreciate that support, but that can be an exhausting thing at the same time because you're always having to think and there's, there's, there's days when you just don't want to have to think because you're so tired and you're mentally drained by what you're feeling on the one side and then having to, to cope and deal with on a day-to-day side. And so there's times where you just said to people, I don't know, but if you want to do something, please do it, figure it out and just throw it at me. And we'll go from there. And uh, I think once people, you know, and we're all the same when we have to deal with other people going through tough situations, you never know what to say and you never know what to do because you don't want to hurt people. You don't want to cause them any more uh, grief or challenge uh, during the difficult times. But I think the fact that you're there and you're, you're, you want to try something and there's never the wrong thing to try to do. That just that can help make it easy for people that are you know enduring the grief from the front line and from where I sat sometimes I had to remind myself too that these people were suffering because they loved her and knew her and uh, you know you're not the only one that was facing a challenge every day so maybe that was part of the learning experience that we kind of mm-hmm. touched on at the beginning Leanne that uh, you learn that too and uh, but all of that group was amazing people from work. I was able to take him on Saturday nights to Hockey Night in Canada and he'd be a part of the studio crew behind the scenes. And, uh, you know, those people were just so special with how they embraced him and, and knew what he was going through and made him feel so comfortable. There's a little boy in there on this 
and on this big stage and uh, seeing all these people and feeling really, really welcomed. And uh, we were very fortunate that when Kathy uh, was first introduced to palliative care at that time, that was at Princess Margaret Hospital. And at that time, we were introduced to a couple of uh, counselors from uh, the Dr. J Children's Grief Center. And uh, they kind of, uh, we had a, a chat, they were introducing me to what they do. And then uh, that inevitably was followed up when uh, when Kathy passed. And uh, what that center provided to us was, uh, was just invaluable on, on so many levels. Could you take us through specifically how the Dr. J Children's Grief Center and also the Panzer Brain Tumor Center helped you and Mark uh, during this time? We really didn't introduce Mark to what was happening with uh, with Kathy until it got closer to her passing. And, and thank goodness we had, again, the counselors, uh, Heather in particular and, and Andrea from the, the Grief Center, because they were able to help coach me and in terms of coaching Mark through this process of understanding that, that mom was sick and then, you know, mom was very sick and the possibility of death and what that was all about. Unquestionably, during this pandemic in particular, we have all been witness in some way to immeasurable loss, both of people that we know or have never met. You know, when you look back on this particular time, having gone through what you your lived experience with Kathy, what have you learned, uh, if anything more, about coping with loss and grieving? There's no one way to deal with grieving. And, and, and getting through the process. Everybody has a different way, a different situation that, that may feel the most comfortable to them. Some like to talk about it, some don't. Some wanna be with people, some wanna be alone. And, and different days can bring different reactions and different feelings as to who you wanna be and, and what you wanna feel in, in terms of relating with people. And one of the things you learn very quickly is that you know, there's no shame in crying. Uh, that's okay. Uh, because often that those tears are tears of, of, of love. And, and it's okay to let that out some days. And it's okay to even laugh some days because those are tears that are born most often of, of, of happy memories. You've worked so hard to honor her memory. Now in its 13th year, the Kathy Morrison Memorial Golf Classic has raised more than $350,000 for the grief and brain centers that helped you and your son. Scott Morrison, thank you so much for taking the time to share your journey with us today. Well, my pleasure and thank you for asking. And, uh, you know, if the, if the folks get a chance, um, we're in the process of trying to resurrect the, the Dr. J Children's Grief Center. And uh, uh, it unfortunately was a casualty during the COVID, not because of it per se, but uh, just because funding and they've never received government funding. It's been just a lot of people who have uh, donated and felt compelled to. Good luck with all your efforts, Scott. Remember to visit whereparentstalk.com to learn more about our guests, listen to the podcast version of the show, or connect with other parents in our award-winning digital community. We've also got the details about this week's giveaway posted. That's our time for this week. Thanks for listening. I'm Leanne Castellino. See you next time.